0: So I mentioned uh, kind of when we started this journey to the book of Acts that part of what we were going to do a little better as we explored our sort of call to live as a sent community is tell stories better. Stories of people that are experiencing God moving not only in their lives but are experiencing God's call. Stories of Christ's followers. And so each month we're going to try and put different movements of uh, people up here as they explain and, and talk about God's sort of call on their life. A lot of it which relates to our passionate involvement in mission, both uh, locally and globally. And so we've got a young lady who most of you know. She sings with us from time to time and is a part of our worship team. And she has been called by God to go to Thailand. And our church is really excited to send her and be a part of that journey with her. She's only got a few more months here in the States before she heads off. And so I invited her to come up today and sort of be our first movement into this expression of sharing story. And so I've invited Reagan Taylor to come up and tell us a little bit about Her movement to Thailand, um, or a move to Thailand, and she was up here uh, three or four months ago, sort of told about her call. So I asked her to sort of explain where she was now, the formation of her team, what she's going to be doing in Thailand, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about how we can uh, be involved together.
1: Hello. Uh, My name is Reagan. I don't know who all was here last time I was talking, but maybe I'll catch you up. Um, I actually just got back from team training in Kansas City about a month ago with my team who's going to Thailand with me. Um, There's two married couples, and one of those couples has two little boys who are four and eight. There's another girl along with me. Um, And we talked a lot about what it looks like to be a team that's healthy and a team that loves Jesus well and uh, follows the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so we talked a lot about gifts that each of us have and um, just how to really listen to the Holy Spirit and what basic principles of church planning looks like. So really that comes down to exactly what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks here um, with Acts. So a lot of prayer and a lot of dependence. Sorry, I'm nervous and I have allergies. <laughs> um, a lot of dependence on the, on the voice of the Holy Spirit and the power of God because nothing will happen outside of that. So we can be really cool and love Jesus a whole lot, but it doesn't matter if we're not listening to the voice of God and depending on the Holy Spirit to open doors to um, share the gospel with people. So practically, that looks like um, most people in Thailand are Buddhists. There's only about 0.4 percent Um, of those people who are actually Christian, so it's vastly um, non-Christian there. So we'll be going to language school for a year. We'll be learning Thai, so we'll be speaking to them in their language. Um, It's really hard (laughs) so far, so you can pray for that. (laughs) and They'll actually learn uh, the language. It has, like, squiggly letters and, like, five different tones and all of these things, so it's going to be really challenging. Uh, But we'll we'll be doing that for a year um, beginning in January, so all of next year will be language school. And then we'll be moving farther northeast into Thailand, and we'll be just living there with people. And we'll be doing exactly what we've been talking about here. We'll be meeting them, speaking their language, um, forming close friendships with them, and then telling them about Jesus. And really our vision isn't to bring the American Western church with us and say, here, this is the model that Jesus set forth in the Bible for you. Do it this way, (laughs) because it's not. um, We're going just like Paul, meeting people telling them about Jesus and seeing them come to Christ and the Holy Spirit work in their lives and then them forming the church, meeting together and reproducing in a way that's relevant to Thailand. So as soon as they um, are doing that and we're seeing that fruit and that growth, um, we're going to leave. We'll be just like Paul. We're not going to stay forever and run everything. We're going to really empower them to run it themselves and just uh, really trust the Holy Spirit that he's going to be moving there um, and he's going to be making the church grow. Um, So, yeah, we're really excited about that. Um, as far as I think trouble will talk more about this, but as far as just church being apart, like I said, we cannot do this apart from prayer and apart from really understanding and discerning where does God want us to be, um, where does he want us to share with people, with whom does He want us to share, and just how do we have that discernment and we 're not just bringing our own awesome ideas and saying this is it, this is the best idea when it 's not that's it 's not what God has, so we need that discernment and we need that encouragement because it 's going to be really hard, and we just need prayer that the people of Thailand um, will be ready, and that, that that soil will be good, and they'll be ready to hear um, the gospel so that their hearts will be soft and they want to hear about it. So we're excited for that, but yeah.
0: I guess give her a hand. Why not? Thank you, Reagan. So there's a couple of really cool things that we get to do as a church. You can go sit. It's good. We're going can stay here, or, or you can sit right here the whole time. a Justin Timberlake concert. Um, not that I would know. Justin Timberlake concerts are like um, a couple of really cool things we get to do as a church right um, but one of my favorite is that we get to be about sending people so the church as we've explored through the book of Acts is really about living as a sent body that we exist outside of this place that, that the church building this thing <clears throat> is more of a launching place for us And we live as a sent people, but the church as a community, as the ecclesia, as the gathered body of Christ, is also a sending agency. We get to send people into the world. We explored a few weeks ago um, that, really, kind of last week when we talked about Pentecost, that the idea of the heartbeat of Jesus is really a gospel heartbeat. It's a Great Commission heartbeat, and it's a mission heartbeat. And the church has got to have the same heartbeat as Christ, and Jesus had a heartbeat for the nations And so we as a church are deeply committed to mission, whether it's going and participating or sending and supporting. And so we as a a privilege that we have, we get to to listen to Reagan's call from the Lord and then be a part of sending her. And we can do that in a multitude of ways. As she mentioned, we can be a part of her prayer team and support and commitment, encouraging her. Uh, We can share her victories and struggles uh, when she's over in Thailand. We can also financially send her. So the church is committed to financially supporting uh, Reagan as she goes, like we do with a lot of missionaries we support. But our support is just a tiny little piece. And so I really would encourage you, if you've never really actively engaged in supporting um, missionaries that you would consider it in the back of the room in a little basket back there Reagan's got these little cards with some information about her and where she's going and how to give I would really ask you to pray over to consider it not because Reagan asked me to stand up here and ask everybody to give her money I think she's getting close to where she needs to be but because when you get deeply involved with someone else As sending them into the world, you begin to share their stories, both victories and struggles. And as a church, it's not about saying, oh, our church has a mission budget, and therefore I give to the church, and the church gives to mission. That's really not the expression that we see played out. I give to the church because God calls me to surrender my resources to him. And I send people because I love seeing the gospel move across the world. So begin to think about what your relationship with that might be, and not just with Reagan, but with other people in your life. And people that come to you and say, hey, God's calling me to be a part of Crusade, or God's calling me to go to Papua New Guinea, or whatever. To begin to think about what it might look like to partner with people and send them. The church is not an organizational thing that has a budget structure, and then therefore they have this much. The, the church is a movement of people. The grassroots organic kind of collection of people that say we want, about, we want to be about seeing the gospel made famous all over the world. And if God is calling Reagan as part of this community, God is calling all of us. So we get to participate in that. So I'd encourage you to shake her hand, meet her if you haven't uh, met her already, talk to her a little bit, grab one of these cards, also post her online stuff on the city so that you can kind of quickly go there and find it. But this is exciting, and we're going to be telling these stories. And so, Reagan, we're excited to hear about what God's going to do in the future and kind of how that unfolds and uh, what happens in the next couple of months and as you travel. And Reagan and I are working to figure out creative ways to tell stories from the field. So we're going to be getting together to talk about that so that we can do a better job telling you what's happening in Thailand while she's feet on the ground. So, very cool stuff. So, this morning we are uh, moving on and transitioning out of that. We're transitioning into the book of Acts, chapter 2. Several of you uh, have have kind of inquired in, in very kind of nice ways, hey, how long is this thing going to take? <laughs> and, and not being mean, just like, hey, you know, and I, I'm telling you today, we're going to knock out a chunk of it. We're going to go for like 30 verses, 14 all the way through 41, whatever the math is there college students can figure that out, but we're going to try and go for a massive chunk, and I'm a little bit anxious about it because it's a huge piece of text that we're going to try and tackle, but to divide it up doesn't really make sense, so we're going to try and get through it all. In order to do that well, I have to kind of captured in bigger pieces. And so we're, we're going to be working through it, but I'm going to try and capture it for you in bigger pieces so that we can really understand what's going on. So if you have been, those of you that have been coming, we're now into week four of this journey. And the idea is we're going to explore the book of Acts together and try and see what it calls us to as a church. Because the book of Acts is more than a book. It's more than the companion volume to the book of Luke. It actually is a call for the church and for the follower of Christ. The entire book is a call on your life. And it's a call on my life. And what does it have to say to us? And we've kind of explored it up and down. And last week we left right in the middle of this movement of the Holy Spirit that we call Pentecost. One of the Jewish religious celebrations, people had come from all over the place to gather. And the Holy Spirit shows up in this incredible, powerful way. And we talked about it last week. We talked about the pneuma, the breath of God, the rach of God that comes in, blows through the room. These tongues of fire that rest on each of these believers. And they began to speak in languages of all the people that had gathered from all over the countryside to come and celebrate this Jewish pilgrimage holiday. And the people were hearing them audibly speak the wonders of God in their own languages, and they were amazed. And we explored the, the meaning behind Pentecost, and I kind of lifted up four theological things and talked about intimacy with God and God's presence and the Great Commission, those kind of things, and that's online or will be online, and so you can go uh, hear that. Our web guy really, he's slow, so we've got to jump on him. So it'll be on next week. So <clears throat> I'm the web guy, by the way, so in case I can make that connection. This week, we're picking up right where we left off, all right? So here's what's going on. Right at the end of this thing, people, as they're confused and amazed and perplexed, somebody says, a couple of them say, we can't explain this. Surely, these guys are drunk, right? It is. They are. Something is unexplainable, and they're drunk. So we're going to pick up, as Peter sort of takes this time, this opportunity to rise up as a leader, speak into that question, and then record what is really the first sermon ever preached. Now, there's 14 of them, the sermons in the book of Acts, and this is the first one of those, and it's the first time that we see a follower of Christ begin to articulate the gospel to a crowd of people, and so it's kind of a a unique and interesting moment. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll open the word together, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your word is true. God, we thank you that you speak to us directly through it. God, I pray that you would make your word come alive in our hearts this morning. That as we hear truth, God, you would, you would minister to us. You would convict us. You would challenge us. You would comfort us. Wherever it is that we are, you would meet us there. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to, to speak to you. Whatever that means, you probably know what it means. Just ask God to speak to you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Just pick somebody and pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. we are so grateful for the fact that you speak into our lives, that you don't leave us or forsake us, but that, God, you are ever faithful and present. And so, Lord, help us surrender to that truth today as we explore um, the gospel, really, in its entirety, as laid out by Peter, and and come to an understanding that, really, at its core, the gospel changes everything. And so, Lord, we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. All right, so I'm going to do this a little bit different today since we have so much that I want to try and at least cover. Instead of reading it like I might normally do and then just kind of going through it, we're just going to kind of go through it. So we're just going to start. and explore these little pieces uh, kind of a bit at a time. And I've had to break it into big sections because you'll see it makes sense when we begin to look at its entirety. So we're going to pick up in 14. And where we pick up, Peter stands up and begins to address this concern, right? Like, hey, what in the world is going on? Some people are perplexed and amazed, and some say that you guys have had too much to drink. And this is where Peter picks up in verse 14. He says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow, Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what is spoken by Joel the prophet. So Peter has become this leader. He has stepped into the role that Christ has given him, and he's become the leader of this little grassroots, organic, non-religious movement that we talked about the first week of this study called the church. The church. We see that as he's the one that sort of searches scriptures and believe that God is speaking to them, and he sets up the move to replace Judas with Matthias. Those of you were here a few weeks ago remember that. He stands up as the mouthpiece, not only of the church, but of the Holy Spirit right here. And it says he stood up with the 11, meaning that he has the backing and support of the 11 other as, uh, apostles that now include Matthias. And so Peter stands up with the 11, and with the 120. Remember, there's 120 other believers at this point in time. And they were all present at this movement of Pentecost, and they were speaking in these languages that all of these gathered Jewish people could understand. And remember, once Israel, Israel was conquered in two big waves, once to the Assyrians and once to the Babylonians, they were carried off in exile. They intermarried, and they settled down, and they began to speak languages of all these other countries, all these other people groups. And as they still hung on to the religious heritage, they would come in for these festivals, right? And I explained those festivals last week. Well, Pentecost was one of them. And they came in, and so they spoke all these different native languages. And they hear these guys, these people, standing up and proclaiming the wonders of God in languages that nobody from here spoke. And they were perplexed. So Peter stands up, and he sort of dismisses this little charge, kind of a ridiculous statement, by saying, you know, what you're hearing is not people being drunk, It's 9 in the morning. It's ridiculous to think that all 120 of us gathered in this little outer room outside the temple court area would all be drunk at 9 in the morning. But what you're hearing is something that is moving in the wonder of God that is unfolding and is is happening. And he begins this speech in verse 17. Sermon, speech, message, whatever. What we recognize is that it's this extended discourse that Peter engages in. And we can rest assured in this, that when you see these sermons in Scripture... They are really snapshots of probably much bigger pictures. So we even hear in this one that at the very end it says, And Peter used many other words to plead with them and, and warn them. So what Luke is capturing as he writes this is sort of a, a picture of exactly what Peter says. And Peter begins with the prophet Joel. Now you've got to understand this gathered Jewish crowd would have understood the Old Testament prophets. Even though they intermarried and kind of developed new languages and lived in different people groups, they clung to the religious heritage is what brought them back to Jerusalem for the religious feast. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament with the stories. They would have been familiar with what Peter was about to reference. In fact, they were all waiting for the Messiah. And Joel's prophecy speaks to that. And so Peter begins to explain it by using the prophet Joel, and he says... In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on people. Your sons and daughters will prophecy. Your young men will see visions, and your men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophecy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Joel is prophesying about the coming Messiah. Now it's safe to say that almost all the people gathered there were living in anticipation of the coming Messiah. That's what the Jewish people believed. But very few of them believed that Jesus was actually the coming of that Messiah. That was what took place some 50 days before when they crucified Jesus. They were waiting for the coming Messiah. Jesus was not the Messiah that they had hoped for. He was not the conquering hero. He was not riding in the back of a stallion, uh, kind of freeing the Jewish people from Roman rule. He came in on the back of a baby donkey. He was a Savior that didn't fit the picture of what the people wanted. And what Peter does in this first movement, and there's really five movements in this sermon, in this first movement is he basically looks at them all and he says... This is the day that you've been waiting for. All the Jewish people were living in anticipation that the Messiah would come. And the Messianic Age, the, the period of the Messiah, would come with great movements of God's Holy Spirit. All the Old Testament talked about it. It talked about signs and wonders and the outpourings of the Spirit that would be seen when the Messianic Age came, when the Messiah came. And they were waiting for that. And what basically Peter is doing is he's saying, today is that day. What you're hearing in these kind of outpourings of the Spirit and the proclaiming the wonders of God in your own languages is not something crazy that can be defined by whether people are drunk or not or whether they're talking gibberish. The idea is that this is the outpouring of the Spirit. Listen to what Joel says. This is what Joel was proclaiming. We are in that period. Today is a day. It is the movement of the messianic age. Now this is important. Because the Jewish people were gathering for these festivals and they were all waiting for the Messiah to come. And very few of them, 120 of them to be in fact, and to be fact, were the ones that believed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And Peter begins this message to all of these Jewish people by saying, today is the day. What you're hearing is the movement of God. This pneuma of God, this rock, this breath, this thing that has happened, this stuff that you're seeing is the outpouring. It is the prophecy. It is the Spirit's outpouring. This is the messianic age. And Jesus, as he's getting ready to tell us, is the Messiah. So the first movement of a sermon is to say, listen, all of you Jewish people connect with the Old Testament. Today is the day. What I'm getting ready to tell you will change you forever. So he sets this up by moving to the book of Joel, and I'm not going to go through all those verses, but just sort of saying, today is the day. So then he launches into this person of Jesus Christ, and he begins in verse 22 by beginning to talk about the idea and death, the person and death of Jesus Christ. And he says this, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And with you, and with the help of wicked men, put to death by nailing him to the cross. So Peter says, we are in this day, this age, this time. The Messiah has come. And let me tell you about who he is. That God sent this Jesus, accredited this Jesus. In other words, Jesus came from God, was accredited by God, or given purpose by God. Right? And he did signs and wonders. The same signs and wonders that Joel talked about are ascribed to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from and is accredited by God. Jesus was from God, right? The Jesus that you crucified 50 days earlier. This was God's chosen one, the accredited one, the ones that we saw the signs and wonders from. But listen to verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God set purpose and foreknowledge and with the help of wicked men, he was put to death by nailing him to the cross. Now one of the reasons why the Jewish people could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah is because the idea of the Messiah being crucified was a stumbling block to belief. They were so set on the idea that the Messiah was going to be a political hero that he was going to come and reestablish the social and political power of Israel to free them from Roman rule and sit on the throne like David did some hundreds of years before, that for the Messiah, their long-awaited one to be crucified at the hands of the Romans was unacceptable. The reason they couldn't believe is because their Messiah couldn't die. Look what Peter does. He says, let me tell you a little bit of something about this God that accredited this Jesus. This man, Jesus, was handed to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you put him to death. What Peter basically is saying is that this was God's redemptive move. God not only accredited this Jesus, in other words, gives him standing, but by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, he gave him to you to be crucified. It was no accident, the death of Christ, is what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that Jesus very much died as part of God's redemptive plan. So he's saying, look, this is the day. The messianic period is upon us. What you're seeing are the signs and wonders that were foretold in the Old Testament through the prophets. And this Jesus, who you don't believe is really the Messiah, was actually accredited by God. All those miracles, signs and wonders, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of people, the giving the sight blind, all of those things were evidence that this person was from God. And what is more, his death doesn't mean he wasn't. His death was set forth by God before the creation of time as part of God's redemptive plan. In other words, Jesus' death wasn't a failure, but it was part of God's move. So the second part of this thing that we see, not only is this the day that the prophets have talked about, but the death of Christ was set up by God. It was part of Of God's redemptive move. He moves into the third section begins to talk about the resurrection. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. But God, right? So you crucified Jesus that God gave you and set forth from the beginning of time with his foreknowledge. God gave you this, right? God's purpose in redemptive history was for Jesus to be crucified because death could not contain him. See, Peter moves into this idea of the resurrection. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. God raised him from the dead. Now you see this in the New Testament all the time. The the kind of credit of the resurrection goes to God, and there's a reason for this. Because for God to raise his son from the dead meant that God took the power, and it basically points to the fact that what Peter's pointing at earlier is this is the Messiah. That God set this up and God raised him from the dead. That it was not some move of man, but that God in his full movement raised Jesus from the dead because death could not contain him. Now this is a really important concept because what, what, what Peter uses here is this idea of the really graphic picture, the agony of death. And the word agony there in the Greek is actually the word pang, which really is referring to childbirth. So basically, what he's saying is that that death could no longer contain Jesus, then a woman could contain a pregnant woman could contain a baby. The idea being is that these movements were happening and God was at work. The agony of death could not contain Jesus. God's redemptive movement was at hand, that it was set up as a crucifixion, and then God raised him from the dead. God is victorious. Death could not contain him. And he goes on to use Psalm, 1, or Psalm 16, and he kind of explains that even David pointed to this. David talked about a resurrection. But since David himself wasn't the one that was resurrected, right, he's pointing to Christ. He goes on in verse 29 and say, Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, right? That the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, right? But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And he was not abandoned the grave or his body to decay. So he says, look, David talked about a resurrection. But let me tell you something about David. He's dead. Not only his dead, but his body is in a tomb. So the resurrection that David talked, was talking about was not his own. He's going, listen, people of Israel, pay attention David's talking not about himself, he's talking about the coming of the Christ. So Peter takes these incredibly important Old Testament passages, the prophecy of Joel and the words of David, by which all of them would have known and understood, and he says, listen, these people are talking about the Messiah. Peter was all in the Word of God. He was all in Scripture. And part of his proclamation of the Gospel was to say, Scripture has told us about this moment. We are standing in the Messianic age. The death of Christ was part of God's great plan. So quit your small thinking about the, what the Messiah should or shouldn't be. But God handed him over, and his plan is part of his redemptive plan to be crucified. And then God, in his infinite, amazing power, raised him from the dead. And David talks about it, and David wouldn't talk about himself. David's dead. But Jesus is alive. And he uses that moment to say, This is the King. The scripture talks about. He is seated on the throne, but not an earthly throne, something so much greater. So we've got these three movements. This is the day. The death of Jesus points to it. It was foretold by God. It wasn't a mistake. The death of the Messiah wasn't an accident. The resurrection is victory. Even David talks about it. God raised his son from the dead and seated him on the throne that David speaks about. David was a man And David is in a tomb. But Jesus, death could not contain him. He could not remain dead. The pain of death, the agony of death could not contain him. The fourth thing Peter moves into is he says, verse 33, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. Yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Listen to verse 36, therefore let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter gets through these things and he says, and what is more, that not only did God raise him from the dead, but that he exalted Jesus. The same thing that Paul talks about in Philippians 2 where where he says that that God exalted Jesus to the place that is above all names. Peter says that God exalted, that he ascended, that he raised up Jesus, and that he sits on the right hand of God, and he says, Israel, all of Israel, be assured of one thing. If you're going to hear me say one thing as you listen to me preach, this is what Peter's saying, he's saying, hear this, be assured of this, that God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Christ and Lord. Now, what's interesting there is that both of those names, Christ and Lord, are titles, right? I've said this before, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's not like he's... Jesus H. Christ, or whatever, it's Treb Prater. It's, it's, it's a title. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Christ is a messianic title. And what Peter's saying is that this God who did all this made Jesus the Messiah. He made him the Christ. But not only that, he made him Lord. Now those titles, while both important, are very different, right? In fact, most of us in this room would be really okay when I said, hey, who is Jesus? you say, well, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Messiah. A lot of us would even be okay with saying, well, Jesus is Lord. But those things mean radically different things. To admit that Jesus is Christ is simply saying that Jesus is the one that was foretold about in Scripture. To admit that Jesus is Lord is actually a movement of surrendering to the Lordship, meaning that not only is Jesus Lord, but He is my Lord. Lord over my life in every capacity, my decisions, my comfort, my things, my life. Jesus is Lord, meaning he is my Lord. Not only is he the Christ, but he is my Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are surrendering to the Lordship of Christ, which most of us don't want to engage in. We are very comfortable in saying, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And Jesus, you are Lord in theory. But when it comes down to actually believing the idea of the Lordship of Christ, most of us are, that's where we check out. Because I don't want to surrender my whole life to God. I want to give away the parts that I'm comfortable with and that are easy. But saying Jesus is Lord means that he's Lord of my life. Every part of it. And this is what Peter's doing. Listen to what he says. He says, be assured of this. In other words, I don't really care what you think. Because what you think about Jesus doesn't change the truth about Jesus. So if anything you hear me say, be assured of this. He says, God made Jesus, whom you killed, right? God was victorious over that. He made him both Christ which we talked about in Joel in the Psalms, and he made him Lord, whether you like it or not. See, Peter's message wasn't an emotional appeal to people to kind of go, hey, Jesus is going to be your best buddy. All you got to do is believe that. He basically says, look, Jesus is Lord. He's not begging for your worship. He's not begging hat in hand saying, please, I'm lonely. Come sing to me. He's saying, Jesus is Lord. Whether you like it or not, you can rest assured in that. He's both Christ, the one that we've talked about, And he is Lord, and God has exalted him to the right hand of him, right hand of God. Now, this is important for us because as followers of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe and surrender to both of these ideas, that Jesus is the one that both was promised from the beginning of time, the movement of redemptive history, crucifixion and resurrection? Do we truly believe that? And if we do, does it change what we think about him as being our Lord? I very much want to worship a God who is subservient to my agenda and comes in and sweeps and does things when I need him to. That would be my preference. God, I love you. You are amazing. I've got this, but when it falls apart, I'll call on you. I mean, that's how I want to live. If you want my all of my sinfulness sort of out there. But to call the Christ follower is to surrender to both of those truths. That God, from the beginning of time, you set this Jesus, this, this son of yours, this eternally co-equal person with you, Right, You set this path to redeem my life. And by redeeming my life, I have to surrender to your lordship. So saying yes to Jesus is saying not just yes to the idea that I want to go to heaven, but yes to the idea that I am now yours, completely surrendered to you. So you've got these first four movements. And then the last one sort of comes, and I'll kind of move through this quickly so we can be done. The last one sort of comes through this idea of now what? So here's this message, and then Peter makes this sort of appeal to the people, right? He turns sort of the application, if you will, in a sermon. He says, so all of Israel, be assured of this, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the other, it said to Peter and the apostles, what do we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they say, they are cut to the heart. Sort of a phrase that means they were broken, when they heard these truths, it broke them, and they said, what do we do? And Peter gives them basically two things. He says, repent and be baptized. Now, the word repent there in the Greek is really interesting because there's three words that are Greek that we use to translate the English word repent, right? The first one comes later on in Acts, and we see it a bunch in Scripture, and it's the one that means to turn away. So oftentimes, we think about repenting. We think that it means turning away from an old way of life or behavior. So I've done this. I can no longer do this. I repent of it, right? That comes later on. The book of Acts uses it quite a bit. The second one comes in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and it has this emotional idea of regret. It comes with, when I engage in sin and I break God's heart, I regret that. Not only do I feel bad about it, but my heart is broken over it. So that idea of repenting comes with a heavy heart. A, it's an emotional movement. Well, this word here actually comes with this idea of a mental change. It's not a lifestyle change. It's a complete change of thinking. So when Peter says, repent and be baptized, what he's saying is this. They say, brothers, what shall we do? And he says, change your way of thinking. Because here's the idea. They were wrapped up in thinking that the Messiah was supposed to fit into their expectations. But what Peter just did was show them that their expectations were completely misguided, that God had been moving from the start, and they had to think differently about the Messiah and about their orientation to God. That I am a broken person, that I crucified, that I was part of that movement to crucify God's move. But God was so big that he used that for his glory, raised him from the dead, and now I am in broken harmony with God, and I need a Savior. It was a, for us it makes sense because we've been a part of the church for so many years, but for those Jewish people, this was a radical upheaval of everything they knew about God and expected about God. And Peter says, You know what you need to do? You need to change your way of thinking. And be baptized. Now, that change of way of thinking actually was a way of thinking about who Christ is. So basically, Peter's saying, change your ideas about Jesus, and it will change your life. Right? And then be baptized. It was a response to what was being done inwardly. So the baptism was a response to that inward change in movement that brought with it two things. Forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? Right? Most of these Jewish people didn't believe they really sinned that much. They came once a year, some 50 days earlier, to sacrifice for their sin. And once that was it, they were done. Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll be given the Holy Spirit. Basically saying, this thing that just happened to us is yours. We can't quite grasp the radical change of thinking that this is. But I venture to say this. Most of our struggles, when it comes to our life of sin, are not simply about not doing Most of us think that way, that if I just quit doing this behavior, then God will be okay with me. That if I just turn from this way of life, stop doing this, stop engaging in this, stop doing this thing, that's truly repenting. No, it really just means I don't want to do that anymore because I think that it's wrong repentance at its core has a mental change that says if this is who God really is, if he really did all of this for me, sent his son to give me life, raised him from the dead, then it should change the way I think about my life and how I orient myself to all kinds of things, including actions. So not only do I want to stop doing something, I want to change the way I think about who I am in relation to God, that I am broken and in desperate need of Jesus. And my desire to not engage in something is not for the behavior, but to please God. Because God has something more for me. It's a change of thinking. So what happens? So listen to what happens right at the very end. So at the very end of that, he says, the promise, right, is for you and your children, right, and all who are far off. So he's basically opening this up, saying this is not just for you, but it's for all of your children. And guess what? All these Jewish people that intermarried, basically what, what Peter's saying is that the threshold of God is now wide open, right? And it's for all those that are far off. This promise now includes you and me, Right? And he says this, and 3,000 were added to their number on that day. So they went from 120 to 3,000. Now what's so special about this sermon? I mean, if I were to walk into the Walmart parking lot and gather a bunch of people around and just read this word for word, would 3,000 people come to know Christ? No, of course not. This was a move of the Holy Spirit. It was the same move that sort of moved in these disciples. God was at work. He was breaking hearts. God was the one that was convicting them. The Holy Spirit does that conviction. There's nothing famous about this. If you've ever read Billy Graham's autobiography, one of the things he does, it's a great book called Just As I Am. One of the great things that he says is that for the first eight years of his ministry, really ten years, I think ten years of his ministry, he preached the exact same eight sermons. He'd just go to a new place and read them. And his comment was, my words were really simple. Have you ever heard Billy Graham preach? There was nothing there. It was just straight gospel. No emotion, no great stories, no three points in a poem. I mean, it was just gospel, and the Holy Spirit moved. And what he referenced was, it's God who draws people to himself. And that's what's happening here, that the Holy Spirit moves. All that to bring us to this place, right? We see two major changes that have taken place. One is in the heartbeat of Peter. Think about where Peter was 50 days earlier, vehemently denying Christ, standing in the courtyard of the high priest saying, I don't know that man, running out of the courtyard weeping. Because he had his sort of greatest sin, if you will, was exposed. Now we see Peter, totally different, 50 days later, leading this group of sort of organic followers of Christ, standing up as the mouthpiece of the church and the Holy Spirit, proclaiming, unashamed, proclaiming Christ. Realizing that standing up in front of 3,000 people plus could get him killed. The gospel's changed Peter, right? It's also changing these people. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. 3,000 people get added to their number. When you say added to their number, I don't think we're simply talking about people going, oh, I believe in Jesus. All right, now I go back to my house. Like, that's not how that works. I now associate with Christ, and I am in, all in. We saw this when we went to China. The difference of, of when we share the gospel with Chinese believers is that once they decide that they're going to surrender their life to Christ, that's it. They're all in. There's no sort of nominal Christian faith right, like we experience in our sort of Western culture. They know when they say yes to Jesus, most likely it's going to cost them their jobs, their families, their friends, and in some cases, even their freedom. When they get added to the number, they're all in. Most of our spiritual lives are lives of convenience. Yeah, I follow Christ, sure, why not? I mean, I want to make sure I go to heaven. It doesn't really cost me anything. This message that Peter just proclaimed should change everything. It should. It should change the way that you think, and that in turn should change the way that you live. And like Peter, even in the wake of your greatest mistakes, it's not what defines you. That God has set your path anew because the gospel changes everything. As followers of Christ, this becomes our call.